Well, thank you. It's good to see you again this morning. My wife Linda and I uh, certainly enjoyed worshiping and sharing in fellowship with you last Sunday. And we uh, look forward to being here again today. As we were leaving Porterville, I said there, I wonder how many times we have done this over the years. Um, We just celebrated our 60th anniversary on July the 5th. And I was a student pastor for three weeks before we got married and was a student pastor for the first five years, last year of college and four years of seminary. And then I've been in some kind of ministry since then. And I'm thankful as an octogenarian that I'm still able to have the strength to do it so far, and I'm thankful. But I want to commend you again for making it possible for Pastor Jathan and his wife Melissa to have this time of sabbatical, this time away. That's so important. Um, He won't come back a perfect man, but hopefully he'll come back a refreshed man uh, because that's the purpose of all that. I know he's been here 14 years, and we have Indiana roots, pastored a church in Indiana, Indianapolis for 24 years, and um, we didn't know each other, but we know some of the same people, and we've compared notes, and so I look forward to continuing fellowship with him. But um, but it is good to be here today, and uh, this morning is a continuation um, and really somewhat of an application to what I began last week and sharing with you about this compelling Hebrew word, hesed. Our holy and eternal God, of course, is the sum of all of his attributes, and an attribute of God is, as we said last week, is what God has revealed to be true about himself. And it would be possible, of course, to give more emphasis to one attribute of God as opposed to the, or to the exclusion of others, but my goal is to be true to Scripture and not give any more emphasis to, in this instance, hesed than he gives to it. But what has captured my mind over the past year or so is discovering how frequently Hesed is mentioned in the Old Testament, 246 times, as I mentioned last week. Three-fourths of those references have to do with God's Hesed and love toward his people. I'm also impressed to see how prominent Hesed became in the life of God's people, and to see how this truth was embraced and cherished by, by individual believers, but how it was also celebrated in Israel's highest moments, and how God's people clung to this truth of God's hesed in their moments of deepest despair. And this was true, and you, as you study this more and more, you'll see it, this was true as a nation, and it was true as individuals as well. Now, no single word can fully define hesed, but it's a profoundly encouraging truth, expressing God's eternal goodness, his merciful and compassionate character, but especially his steadfast love to his covenant people. That was affirmed in in the psalm that uh, David read earlier, Psalm 118. It's affirmed again and again throughout the psalms. Um, We saw it last week in Exodus 34, where Yahweh revealed to Moses this glorious description of several attributes of his heart, including two mentions of hesed. One, that he is, <clears throat> he is abounding in hesed <clears throat> and that he keeps hesed uh, for thousands. The other attributes he revealed in that amazing disclosure are all related in some way. And it's important to keep in mind, and again, I'm reviewing somewhat, but the attributes of God are not abstract concepts to be studied as much as they are windows into God's heart, into who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. So listen again to these words just uh, from verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34 that was really the heart of the passage last week. And here's what he said to Moses, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, here's the first use of it, abounding in hesed and truth, who keeps hesed for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, one of the discoveries that has been both captivating and really encouraging to me in my own life is to see how Yahweh's hesed is, is almost always presented against the backdrop 
of Israel's rebellion and defiance. Uh, that was certainly true um, and on grand display last week when we see God's people at their worst and here God is about to reveal to Moses this incredible disclosure of who he is in his good and gracious character. Um, in case you have not de- get discovered it, uh, we know this, of course, need to be reminded of it from time to time, but God himself is the main character in the Bible. Um, he's the hero. There are certain men and women in both the Old and New Testament whose example is worthy, you know, of being followed, and uh, they are lifted up as examples for us, you know, in that way. But God is the one who made them who they became, and he is the one to receive all the glory from their lives, and that's true of us today, isn't it, as well? Um, it's not about us, but it's about him. According to the authority of God's word and the reformers unitedly affirmed, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That being true, it must be, it has to be, to the glory of God alone. And so as we turn to our passage for today, approximately one year has passed since Moses was on his face in worship on Mount Sinai before Yahweh. God's covenant people have now reached the border of the promised land and they're poised to enter. And children in Sunday school uh, know the account of the 12 spies who were sent in to the land and brought back a report that the land was just as wonderful as God had promised. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. Numbers 13, the chapter just before the one we're in today, tells us that they cut down a branch with a cluster of grapes and carried it on a pole between two men along with some pomegranates and figs. And the land God had promised was rooted really in God's abounding hesed, unconditional hesed for his people, rooted in the promise that he first made to Abraham, that unconditional promise of what he would do in making a people and a great nation through whom he would bless the world through Christ. But it's at this point, however, where the crisis arises. And their lack of faith is exposed as 10 of the 12 tribes, 12 spies rather, looked at the walled cities and the strength of the people. And after seeing the giants in the land, you remember their description was, we're just like grasshoppers in their sight. That's how small we are and how little we are. And while two of the spies were men of faith, Yahweh's grumbling people were influenced more by the majority who was wrong than by the minority who was right. We know that story. It's a familiar story. Even the boys and girls in Sunday schools, I said, know that. Our passage today is Numbers 14. It's a little longer passage, but uh, I'd like to ask you to turn with me, if you would, to this passage, Numbers 14. And if you're able to stand, would you stand with me as I read these words? Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness? And why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the congregation, of the sons of Israel, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. But as for you, do not rebel against Yahweh, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has been removed from them, and Yahweh is with us, so do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. (laughs) Then the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Yahweh said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all all the signs which I have done in their midst? I will strike them with pestilence and dispossess them, And I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your power you brought up this people from their midst. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. 
They have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of your people, for you, O Yahweh, are seen eye to eye, while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you put this people to death as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land, which he swore to them, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. So now, I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, or abundant in hesed, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the gracious, to the greatness of your, here it is again, loving kindness, our hesed, just as you have also forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So Yahweh said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. You may be seated. Now, as we just read, and you can see in your outline, I believe you have that in your bulletin, the first part, verses 1 through 4, is the congregation's appalling rebellion. God's chosen people, now at the very border of the promised land, wept and wailed all night in their unbelief and in their rebellion against God's plan and his promised provision for their future. Their grumbling, as we just read, was initially against Moses and Aaron, and everyone was paralyzed by their fear. And you saw their words there, oh, that we had died in Egypt or died in the wilderness. But at the root of their grumbling and rebellion, it really was against the Lord. It was against the Lord Yahweh himself. And they said, why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword for our wives and our children to become plunder? Believing that their best option was to return to Egypt, we just read, their intent was to appoint another leader who would guide them back through the wilderness, back to Egypt and return to a life of slavery. Matthew Henry, many of us know his commentary, he astutely observed, he said, their wish was to die as criminals under God's justice rather than to live as conquerors under God's favor and enter the land. But in response to their appalling unbelief, as we read in the first part of verse 5, Moses and Aaron just immediately fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the congregation of Israel. And then the second thing we see that we just read about here is Joshua and Caleb's courageous appeal. In the previous chapter, Caleb had already boldly voiced his faith, saying, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely be able to conquer it. That's in 1330. But here in the chapter that we are just looking at today, Caleb and Joshua, the two faithful spies, make this powerful appeal to the people. Their position that was since Yahweh was really <clears throat> uh, had, was the one who had redeemed and chosen his people. He was with them as he had promised he would be to Moses, having already given them overwhelming evidence that he would work on their behalf. And they could be ensured that he would continue to be faithful to his promises, just as he had been all along. And he would bring them into the land of abundance, which he had promised. And as you know, from what we just read, their challenge to the congregation was threefold. First, they said, do not rebel against Yahweh. And then secondly, they said, do not fear the people of the land. And then thirdly, Yahweh is with us, so do not fear. So Joshua and Caleb knew, as did Moses and Aaron, that the Lord had promised that the people among whom they would live would see his mighty working on behalf of his chosen covenant people. That was where, that was the last promise, really, that God gave there when Moses worshiped on Mount Sinai, as we saw it in Exodus 34 last week. But then we come thirdly to really, in many ways, the heart of this passage, Yahweh's glorious appearance in verses 10 through 12. So just as the people were preparing to stone these two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, stoned them to death, the glory of the Lord came down and appeared at the tent of meeting. Back in Exodus 33, described the tent of meeting as the place where the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, just like a man speaks to his friend. Yahweh's awesome and glorious appearance at this moment of crisis was a dramatic affirmation to the people that Moses was still God's man. He was still the leader whom God had appointed. 
it was also a sign that it was time for Moses to go in and meet with the Lord. And to we read about this wonderful thing, wonderful exchange. Yahweh's words to Moses, as we read earlier, were strong words of displeasure and anger and began with two questions. How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the things which I have done in their midst? That's quite a question, isn't it? wonder if the Lord asks questions like that. How long will they continue to not believe me and not trust me, even though I've given them my word and given them these incredible promises in Scripture? His anger was because of their sins, but also because of their prolonged continuance in them. Their heart of their problems was really that they had despised and provoked the Lord by not believing in him. Their persistent unbelief was the bitter root um, of their sin, And according to Hebrews, it was their unbelief that made this a day of provocation in the wilderness. It's interesting, uh, you read in the book of Hebrews, for example, see to it, brothers, that there not be any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. There's such a continuing admonition through Scripture to trust and to believe the Lord and to believe that what he said is indeed true. So the word used by Yahweh here... is a strong Hebrew word describing the root of all sin, namely, now think about this, despising the very word of God with a sinful attitude of unbelief. May God help us to never despise his word. And Yahweh goes on to say this, I will strike them with pestilence and dispossess them. Literally, I will disown them. And I will make, of you, I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. The Lord was ready to start over, as he had done before, as we know, in the days of Noah. Um, As I've gone through Genesis a number of times over the year and reading through the Bible, one of the saddest verses in in Scripture, in that section of Scripture, and really all of the Scripture is this, in Genesis 6, where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Then the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And then it says, and he was grieved in his heart. Here's the heart of man intent on evil continually. God was grieved in his heart. But this led, as we know, to God's destructive judgment when only Noah and his family survived. But this was another of those times when Yahweh spoke to Moses about starting over. Also note here, as he had mentioned earlier to Moses in Exodus 32, in addition to starting over, Yahweh says to Moses, I will make of you a great nation, a nation greater and mightier than they. Now since his people whom he loved and for whom he had done so many wonderful and mighty works in their midst had spurned him and had despised him repeatedly, he would make of Moses a great nation. And had that happened... We wouldn't be talking about the children of Israel today, would we? We'd be talking about the children of Moses. But something happened where that did not occur. But against this backdrop, we come really to the heart of this passage and the application I want to make. And that's Moses' bold, discerning intercession in verses 13 through 19. This is one of several times when Moses' courageous, passionate, and discerning intercession is the turning point not only in receiving, in the people receiving God's forgiveness, but also in God continuing to be with his people and to work in their midst and to go along with them. I've thought different times as I've read Moses' example in intercessory prayer that he's a positive example of what God describes in Ezekiel 22 where God says, I sought for a man among them who would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I would not destroy it. But God said, I found no one. And he looked at all throughout society and all the different places. He said, I found no one who would do that. Obviously, ultimately, we know there's only one man perfectly stood in the gap, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But Moses stands in this gap of intercession on this occasion. That's what he does, and it's a powerful intercession that we see here in his life. Before we look more closely at his intercession, let me say that, you know, while there are mysteries about prayer, and indeed there are, the Bible is clear as Jesus taught, and I love these words, men ought always to pray 
and not to lose heart. Luke 18.1 In ways beyond what we are able to grasp with our finite minds, Scripture reveals that God has sovereignly chosen to work through the prayers of his people in accomplishing his sovereign purposes in the world. Um, It strikes me that, it struck me on different occasions that even Jesus in the years of his incarnation and living among us on earth as a spirit-filled man, but as Emmanuel, God with us, his life was marked by prayer. And if Jesus prayed, being who he was and knowing what he knew, that's an encouragement for us to pray as well, isn't it? And so Moses is interceding here. Um, and in, the case, in this case, when you look at the bigger picture of his life, Scripture reveals how God's providential hand of blessing had been on him from the very beginning, from his birth, and really all throughout his life, even though he ran from it for a period of time, even though he was 80 years old by the time when God finally called him at the burning bush, During those years, Yahweh had been developing him. He had been training him. He was continuing to equip him that he might fulfill the purpose that God had for his life. And as we see him interceding here for this sinful people, um, grumbling, fearful, unfaithful people on the border of the promised land, Moses' prayer of appeal to Yahweh is based on two highly significant truths. Now think with me about this. The first is God's glory. Or you might say God's fame. That's the word that's used in some of the versions. Moses begins somewhat abruptly concerned about that dreadful word that Yahweh had spoken when he said, I will disinherit, or literally, I will disown my people, and I'll make of you a great nation. That troubled Moses. And again and again throughout his life, and just an interesting biographical study to look at the life of Moses, but we see how God's glory lay nearer to Moses' heart than any interest of his own. And know that that would be true of all of us, that we would be more interested in God's glory than about our own and whatever that might look like in our own lives. But the first example Moses uses to illustrate his concern for God's glory or his fame, and we read about it here, it's of the Egyptians who had obviously seen display after display of God's awesome and mighty power um, when he delivered the people from Egypt after 400 years of bondage. And even though Yahweh did not need to be reminded of that, we know that he did not because he knows everything, Moses summarizes how the Lord had been, in his words, in the midst of his people, for you, O Yahweh, are seen eye to eye as your cloud stands over them. Um, But secondly, Moses then mentions not just Egypt, but the other nations who had heard of the Lord's fame and glory and how they might say, Yahweh was not able to bring his people into the land which he swore to them, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. And it's a very strong point that he's making and his concern is for God's fame and for God's glory. But having said this, we also see in scripture that God himself is infinitely concerned for the glory of his name. This has impressed me on different occasions as I've read through the Old Testament. In fact, 15 times you will find in the Old Testament the phrase where God says, for my namesake, I will do this. Um, Even when we fail and live for our own glory, or we are not doing what we should do as his people, God says, for my own namesake, for my own glory, I am going to act. Let me give you a couple of examples. One is in Ezekiel 36, 22. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Another example is in Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, yes, for my own sake I do this. How can I let my name be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. So God extols his character and his integrity, his reputation, his holiness, and yes, his glory And all of those are closely linked to his name. And often God acts to protect his name and to prevent it from being disgraced, even when his people have disgraced it repeatedly again and again in numerous ways. One of the songs that has just kind of captured my thinking in the last while is just for the glory of your name. You know, just as we live, Lord, let that be true in our lives, that we would live 
not to call attention to ourselves, but for the glory, really, of your name. But Moses' second concern, or part of his appeal, highlights why I've chosen today to speak from this passage. For here is where Moses goes back to what Yahweh had revealed to him on the mountain about a year earlier in Exodus 34 that we looked at last week. And the revelation where he twice mentions Yahweh's hesed. Moses leads to it, goes into it with these words in verse 17. You have it before you. So now let the power of the Lord be great. And then get, look at this phrase. Just as you have declared. And here's what he said. Yahweh is slow to anger. He's abundant or abounding in hesed, loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means leave the, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now think carefully with me about this. After Moses had made his prayerful appeal based on his concern for the glory of Yahweh's name, we see him basing basing his appeal on what Yahweh revealed to be true about himself, his own attributes there on the mountain, as we read in Exodus 34 last week. And so he then says this. His specific request is found in verse 19. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of, and here it is again, according to the greatness of your hesed, your loving kindness, from Egypt until now. Moses is asking the Lord to do what he had been graciously doing all along from Egypt up until this very serious crisis in numbers. You know, there are just some helpful lessons here for us as we think about this. When our prayers are rooted in a genuine concern for the glory of God, and may that be true of all of us. And secondly, when our prayers are rooted in God's character, in those attributes that he has revealed to be true about himself, God is certainly pleased because that's when he sees our faith. Does he not? The writer of Hebrews says, and we know, Hebrews 11, without faith it's impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists, that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But where does our faith really come from? What's the source of it? How do we get to be a person of faith? Romans 10, 13, of course, says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And this is really what we see in Moses is that his faith was rooted in the word of Yahweh as revealed to Moses on the mountain and this confidence in his character along with his passion for God's glory, were the two truths that were at the heart of his appeal. He's praying, and so, Lord, I'm concerned about your glory. My prayer is for your glory. My prayer is also, my appeal is to you is based upon what you said about yourself. And I have, based on what you've said, I have the ability to believe and trust you as I'm coming to you at this particular moment. And then we come to what I'm referring to as Yahweh's gracious and just response in verses 20 through 38. We didn't read that far in our, in, our, in our reading earlier. You can read that on your own. But here's what the Lord said, first of all. I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. A short answer, but very, very significant. Yahweh's immediate word of response to Moses, first of all, is one of pardon. I will pardon them just as you ask. So that's what Moses asked for. And that's what God gave in response. And included in those words is an assurance that he will not disinherit. He will not disown his people. The entire nation of Israel was rescued from destruction by the intercession of Moses, the man of God. Reminding us as we're reading the book of James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And indeed, we see Moses interceding for the people and accomplishing a great deal here on this particular occasion. God saying, I will pardon them just as you ask, and I've taken care of my glory as well. Indeed, as truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So any questions Moses may have had about God's glory are resolved in this one great statement. Um, This reminds me, I was kind of jumping ahead to the New Testament for a little application. It reminds me of one of the dramatic moments years later in the Gospel of John, where Jesus, only hours before the cross, and it's really a tender 
passage, a, tr- a tender moment in the life of our Lord. When he says, my soul has become dismayed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came into this world. And then Jesus just cries out, Father, glorify your name. And then the voice of the Father came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That's one of three times in the Gospels where the Father speaks audibly, out loud, in the life of his Son. One was at his baptism. One was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And here's the third, just hours, really, before the cross. But it had to do with God's glory. And God is just letting him know, yes, my son, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And that's what he's saying to Moses. As truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, as for the Lord's fuller answer, you'll have to read the rest of the chapter on your own later. But let me summarize by saying that in addition to pardon, as most here know, God's full answer was one of justice. We talked about that last week, but also of mercy. His justice is seen in that this entire generation of adults from 20 20 years of age and upward received that for which they had voiced in their complaint. They would die in the wilderness. That's exactly what would happen. And they would die over the next 40 years, not being able to enter the land of promise, even though they were right here on the border when this crisis occurred. During the next four decades, their children would suffer the consequences of their parents' sin, their unbelief and unfaithfulness, even as God had said. And yet, also, as an expression of God's mercy, he would allow those under the age of 20, along with the children who would be born in the wilderness over the next 40 years, to enter the promised land. So his answer was one of justice. His answer was one of mercy. But in addition, as for the 12 spies, verses 36 and 38 tells us that Yahweh did with them. Matthew Henry, again, um, based on the description of those verses, suggested that 12 spies might have been lined up in a row. And suddenly, 10 of them, the unbelieving ones, were hit with a plague and they died. Whereas the other two remained standing because they were men of faith and... As we know, God was not finished with them yet. Joshua would become the one who would actually take the place of Moses. Moses would see the land, but he would not enter himself. Caleb would continue to be a man of faith and a strong example to the younger generation. He would be one of those, Joshua and Caleb, would both be two examples of those individuals in Scripture whose lives are worthy of invitation. Caleb especially challenges me as, a, as I get older because he's a man who finished strong. He finished well. Even as an elderly man, he continued to trust the Lord. And I want to be that way. You know, however long God keeps me here, I want to be someone that trusts the Lord. Others of you are identify with that, I know as well. But I share this passage today in this two-part series on God's Hesed for this reason. And you see it in your outline in the sixth point there that I have. And this is where we depart from an exposition of one passage to see a few other examples uh, of those who prayed in a very similar way as Moses prayed, praying on the basis of what Yahweh had revealed to be true about himself and his character, especially his hesed, and how this wonderful truth carries over. And as as I said, it, it carries over into the to the life of the nation as a whole, but you see it in the lives of individuals as well, where they would cling to it, they would rely upon it because God had revealed that to be true about himself. So the first example that I want to give is about David. David in his worship, but also in his sin. Another of the interesting features about God's remarkable, unconditional, undeserved hesed is this. Out of those two hundred and 46 references to Hesed in the Old Testament. Did you know that more than 100 of them are actually found in the book of Psalms? Um, We saw it today, I think, five or six times in Psalm 118. Saw it last week in the passage that was read, Psalm 145. But the Hebrew believers incorporated this encouraging, life-transforming truth of God's Hesed, along with other related attributes God had revealed, into their prayers into their songs, 
and into their worship. Um, as I spoke to Pastor Jason about what I was going to be speaking on today, he selected songs and scripture reading, and he obviously was right on in what he did, you know, lifting out those passages that deal with this, and we see it especially in, in the Psalms. Um, let me give you just two or three examples from David's life. The first is Psalm 86, where he says this, O God, arrogant men have revolted against me, <clears throat> and a band of ruthless men have sought my life, but they have not set you before them. And then here's what David says, But you, O Lord, are a God compassionate and gracious, identical to what he said on the mountain, what God said on the mountain, slow to anger and abounding in hesed and truth, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me, O grant your strength to your slave. Like Moses before him, who appealed to Yahweh based on what he had revealed about himself on Mount Sinai, David's prayer is rooted in that same revelation. And God, I believe, wants us to do that. That's why he revealed himself, so we would know who he is and what he's like. And on the basis of who he is, then relate to him on that, on that basis. Um, I'm not always conscious that I'm doing it. But I find sometimes, and you probably do as well if you were to think about it. Um, I often begin my prayers with what I know that God has revealed to be true about himself. Um, I may not know what his plan is or what his answer is going to be in what I'm praying about, but I start with what I know. I start with what he has revealed to be true about himself. And it helps my faith to affirm who he is. I think it was Spurgeon who said, when we cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. We may not know the specifics of how God's going to work, but we can trust his heart. And that's what we see David doing in affirming that he is a God of Hesed. Another example from David is Psalm 103, just a favorite psalm of many, many people, where he says <clears throat> he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. And then he says, and these are some of his ways, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, directly out of Exodus 34, and abounding in Hesed. He will not always contend with us or keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to iniquities. But as high, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is, and here it is, so great is his hesed toward those who fear him. Again, we see David returning to God's revelation of his gracious heart, twice including God's abounding hesed in his prayerful affirmation of faith. A third example is Psalm 145. Another of Psalm, David's psalms of praise, he begins, Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in hesed. Yahweh is good to all, and his compassions are over all of his works. So you can look at the other psalms of David, and you see it frequently, but over a hundred times, not just the psalms of David, but in the psalms, you'll see that word used. <clears throat> David, as we know, is one of the most prominent and well-known characters in the Bible. From his victory over the giant Goliath when he was still a youth, to him being anointed to be king by Samuel when he had been overlooked by his father, <laughs> um, to his wonderful friendship with King Saul's son, Jonathan, a, a relationship, by the way, that was built on Hesed in a horizontal relationship um, from King Saul trying to kill him to becoming the most beloved king of Israel to being referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel and then having been given the highest compliment of all by Yahweh himself when he said he's a man after my own heart but as we know David committed some appalling sins <clears throat> Since the Bible, interestingly, makes no attempt to cover up, to hide, or to sugarcoat in any way, not minimizing them, they're there in Scripture for us to see. And we read, at the time of the year when kings go out into battles, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And in his leisure time one evening, on the roof of the palace, he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. 
He then abused his power as king by sending for her and committing adultery with Bathsheba, the beautiful wife of Uriah, one of David's most loyal soldiers. When Bathsheba sent word sometime later that she was pregnant, David attempted to cover it up by making it look like she was pregnant by her husband, Uriah. When his subtle scheming did not work out the way he hoped, he conspired with Joab, the commander of his army, to put Uriah in a position where the battle was most fierce so that he would be killed. And that's exactly what happened, as we know. Uriah was slain, and David's sin multiplied from adultery to murder. The Bible then explains, but the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And most of us know how the Lord then sent his faithful prophet Nathan to confront the king about his sin. And this courageous yet wise discerning prophet began, began by telling David a story about how there were two men in the city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished. And it grew up with him and his children. It would eat his morsel of bread and drink from his cup and lie on his chest. And the little lamb became like a daughter to him, the Bible says. It was at this point where Nathan's story suddenly took a surprising turn. And he said, then a visitor came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. But instead... He went and took the poor man's cherished little lamb and prepared it for his guest. Then the Bible tells us that David's anger burned greatly against that man. And he said to Nathan, as Yahweh lives, surely this man, the man who has done this, deserves to die. And he must make restitution fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And God's faithful, courageous prophet then pointed his bony finger in the face of the king. And he said, King David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said. I anointed you king over Israel. I have delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even much more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this before the eyes of all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because of doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. You might say, well, why do I tell you this today? And I'm glad you asked. Because I want to tell you why. Even after Nathan's wise and courageous carefrontation to King David, and even after the prophet had assured him that he was forgiven, this was the lowest point, really, in David's life, entire life. And David, being the man that he was spiritually, had to work through this, humbly work through it, in his own heart before the Lord. And if ever he would have a clean heart before the Lord again, how could that happen? It was not something he could achieve on his own. It would only be done by the God he knew who had revealed himself as the one who was abounding in Hesed. And Psalm 51 is the record of David's prayer in asking Yahweh forgiveness. Some students of the word believe that David may have written this psalm during those moments there when he, during the time when he was praying for his son to live. We don't know. Whatever the time, Psalm 51 is the godly sorrow of David and his repentant prayer humbly asking for forgiveness. And here's the way he begins. 
Be gracious to me, O God, according to your hesed. There it is right there, immediately in his prayer. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your hesed. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. You see what I'm saying? We've already seen the example of Moses. So David was not the first to plead for undeserved forgiveness in a desperate situation, appealing to God's hesed. And that's what we saw earlier in Numbers, when Yahweh was ready to destroy the whole nation and disinherit his people. Moses had appealed to God's hesed, which he had revealed on, on Mount Sinai. And he said, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your hesed as you have done from Egypt up until now. Our compassionate and gracious God who is abounding in hesed and keeps hesed for thousands, who also forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, graciously forgave David. He forgave the whole nation, but now he forgives David, the king of adultery and murder, even as he had pardoned his wicked, rebellious people all throughout their journeys. Thanks be to God for his abundant, complete forgiveness. I'm another who's been forgiven. How about you? Psalm 103, again, a psalm of David. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as Jeremiah then adds, never to be remembered against us anymore. This helps us understand why David exclaimed in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you because, now get this, your hesed is better than life. That's how much he valued it. Do you recall the point that I made at the beginning about how God's hesed is often displayed against the backdrop of horrendous sin? At some of the lowest moments in the lives of individuals such as David and in the nation of Israel as we saw in Numbers 14. But even so, as there are consequences, even so there are consequences as we know. And I, I would think it important to remind you of that today. It struck me over the years for some time really that in the greatest book in the New Testament on freedom and the liberty we have in Christ, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, let us keep standing firm again and not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In that greatest book on freedom that we have in Christ in the New Testament, we also find this warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption but he who sows to the Spirit will reap life everlasting. Sobering. Well, we could just about stop there. I've given you two or three other examples here. Let me give you just to remind you of one. In the historic prayer of confession in Nehemiah 9, during the days of, days of Ezra and Nehemiah following the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem, Nehemiah 9 is really a lengthy prayer that obviously was written and prepared for this occasion. And this is an occasion where the temple had been rebuilt at 70 years in, in Babylonian captivity. They came back. The temple was rebuilt. The walls then were later rebuilt. But the people needed to be rebuilt. Their lives were just in a bad shape. And so they pray. And through the preaching and teaching of Ezra, the word, and all those things that you see in, in those two books, God brought about a real time of repentance. And in that prayer, and you can read that lengthy prayer for yourself. Uh, I read it earlier this morning. Nehemiah 9. It's a lengthy prayer of repentance and God's abundant hesed plays an important part in that. But part of that prayer says this as the people are praying, but our fathers acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they appointed, so they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. And then here is just what we read about earlier. But you are a God of forgiveness Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, and you did not forsake them. Hesed is God's steadfast, unfailing, unconditional, undeserved covenant love for his people. And he loves to display it, even against the backdrop of horrendous sin and rebellion of his people. I'll let you look up the reference to, in Joel on your own. 
as he makes his appeal. But let me close with this one from, from uh, uh, Isaiah. <clears throat> as I was continuing uh, to dig into this astounding truth of Hesed this past week, I read a comment in Vine's Expository Dictionary of Old Testament Words. I'd read it before, but I just saw this. It just, just jumped, jumped out to me where he said this, God's Hesed love refers primarily to God's particular love for his chosen and covenanted people. His Hesed love will not be abandoned even when his people are unfaithful and must be disciplined. It's not, his Hesed is not going to change. It's an unconditional commitment to us. And then these words from 54, and then we'll be through. For a brief moment, I forsook you, but with great compassion, I will gather you in an outburst of anger. I will hide, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting hesed, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. And then a great memory verse, if you haven't memorized it before, Isaiah 54, 10. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my hesed will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. I'm so glad, and I know you are as well, that God is committed to us. If you want to see the New Testament version of this, just read the last part of Romans 8. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for this time this morning. Some of what we've covered is familiar ground, familiar territory, things we've learned and familiar about, but we pray, Lord, I pray that you just help us to appreciate in a fresh way this incredible love that you have for us, a love that cannot be defined with one word, but can be described and is described all throughout Scripture. So we give you thanks this morning, and we pray, Lord, that you would just receive the glory from our lives. In your name we pray, amen.